When I was in my 20s, I had a friend in church named Bob who was a good guy and a Christian. But over time, it, his life seemed to be coming more erratic and things he would say didn't always line up. And I gradually found out through his wife that he had fallen back into an addiction to heroin. And I was very concerned for my friend because I could see this was hurting his life and, and wrecking his marriage. And I wanted to do whatever I could to help him. And, and about that time, I learned that here in DuPage County, there was a pastor at a nearby church who had been an alcoholic and was now well in recovery and had gone into the pastorate as kind of a caregiving profession so he could help other people. And I thought, this is perfect. He will totally understand and help my friend. So I picked up the phone and I called him and I explained who I was and what I wanted and I said, I wish you would just call my friend. And he asked a few questions about the situation and I told him and he said, he's not ready. He doesn't want help yet. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I think if you would just call him, if you would just get on the phone, that would turn the tide for him. And finally, in a little exasperation with me, this pastor said to me, Kevin, you don't understand. When you have an addiction, your car drives itself to the bar. And that phrase burrowed itself into my brain. And I've never forgotten it. Your car drives itself to the bar. What I did not understand fully yet, but what I really understand now is that sin has the power to take control. It has a cyclical power. It has a repetitive power. It has an intensifying power. And if it can, it wants to dominate you. It wants to take over your life. And whatever that sin is, it wants to take you where you had no intention of going and where you were never planning to go. It wants to drive you to the bar. Now, what's your car? In my office, people often will talk about what it is for them. One guy uh, came in and said, you know, I, I travel a lot for work and sometimes I do pretty well, but what's on the TV in those hotel rooms is my kryptonite. Woman came in to make a confession. She said, I love my kids. They mean more to me than anything in the whole world. I told myself I would not be one of those ragers and screaming parents, but they push my buttons and I just, ah. Or maybe it's just a quieter sin. I, I, I talked with one man and, and he said, I want to give generously. I, I feel like that would actually help me. But every time I get right up to the point of doing it, I pull back in fear. I can't trust that God is actually going to provide for my needs. What is it for you? Well, I am here with good news this morning. In fact, it's better than good. It's really good news. It's great news. It's amazing news. And I would say, I would have to call it almost unbelievable news because most Christians I know don't really believe it. And this, the truth is this, that you can change. That through God, God has made a way in which you can get your hands back on the steering wheel and your foot back on the accelerator and the brake and you can live a more godly life, a more holy life, a more transformed life, a more Christ-like life. Yes, you can. But I find there's a lot of confusion. And so this morning, I want to take us into Romans where this is all set out and make sure that we really understand this and that we understand how it works out itself in our daily lives. Let's look at that together. If you turn to Romans 6, 
Now, we've been studying Romans together, which is the heart of the Christian message. And in the first three chapters of this letter, what Paul does is he says, you're worse off than you think. Every single person, whether you're religious, irreligious, that doesn't really matter. What's true about you is that somewhere in your life, you have a car that drives itself to the bar. There's some self-centered, self-focused, self-destructive pattern that recurs for you and, and, and you end up hurting other people and violating a holy God. And, and you're, you're worse off than you think. But then he goes right on into chapters four and five right after that to say, but God in his mercy has made a way. He came in Jesus Christ and took the sin upon himself. He took the punishment of what you and I do upon himself so that you could be forgiven. Grace provides forgiveness from the punishment of sin. Hallelujah. That's what we learned last week. Well, now, if you understand that grace is really that radical, people started accusing Paul of this, verse 1. Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? People are accusing Paul. Oh, Paul's the grace guy. He keeps giving people warnings even when they're driving 90. He never gives them a ticket. If you do that, Paul, everybody's going to be driving 90. Nobody's going to want to live a holy life if you keep giving them grace, if you keep pronouncing God's forgiveness. And Paul's like, really? No. Verse 2, of course not. Or as we would say, no way. What are you thinking? Now, why does Paul say that the, the grace life, the life in which we are forgiven freely through Jesus Christ, is a life in which you don't repetitively become under sin's power? Why would he do that? Is it, is it because it's against the rules? Is it because it would hurt God's feelings? No, he says, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? What he's saying is, you are a different person now. There's been a fundamental change that happened when you became a Christian. When you went through the process of, of repentance and faith, baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit, something changed inside you, and he uses a picture to help us understand it. The main picture that he uses here is a corpse. Now, I don't know how many of you have been with a loved one as he or she passed away. I have, and so first you, you notice that the extremities become blue, the, the earlobes or the, the fingernails. And then when you hold their hand to pray with them, it's cold to the touch. And then they usually, you know, the, the rising and falling of the chest suddenly stops. And eventually that hospice worker comes and, and pulls up the sheet. And that's what Paul wants you to know, that when you were baptized, look at this, there was a death. What died was your old way of life in which you had to do whatever sin wanted you to do. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten, verse 3, that when we were joined with Jesus Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's a historical fact that Jesus Christ died. But when that happened, there's also a personal experience for you and for me. We get put into Jesus Christ in baptism, so when he dies, we die, meaning the part of ourself that had no choice but to sin, that dies when we are baptized into Jesus Christ. And so what Paul's saying here is, do you get this? I, it's, it's better than just grace forgives you. 
If, if that were all it was, it would be we sin, uh, we're forgiven, we sin, we're forgiven, we sin, we're forgiven, and we limp into heaven. That's part of the story. But Paul's going on now to say it's much better than that. You can actually sin less. You can fall less often. God can transform your life. Grace gives you that power. See, before that, when we were under sin's power, some people are kinder than others, and maybe your temperament was great. Maybe you were a fairly kind person. But there's still a relentless self-focus in any life outside of Jesus Christ. You're kind because you're supposed to be kind. You're kind because you want others to think nicely of you. But in Jesus Christ, you gain a new power as that old way of life is put to death in which you can actually become a person of magnanimity. You can become a person who gives sacrificially even though nobody else even knew you did that. You can become a person of courage, nobility, and love. That's what changes. Now, what this means is that for the first time in your life, in Jesus Christ, you do not have to sin. You actually have the choice. When I was uh, in high school, I was a Spanish student, and at the end of the school year, our Spanish teacher decided to take a class trip over to Spain. And so I was able to go, which I was totally pumped about. And when we got there, as part of our cultural immersion, we went to a flamenco show. And as part of the price of admission, uh, you got one drink. And we quickly realized there's no drinking age limit here in Spain. So everybody at my table ordered up a drink, like a rum and coke or something more exotic, and the table filled up. Well, my drink went down really easy. And then I looked around and I realized a lot of these other kids didn't like their drinks, so I began working my way around the table. After about the fourth or fifth drinking, I do not remember exactly what I said or did, but everybody next day said, that was awesome. You were hilarious. What I experienced the next day was I was stretched out in the hotel room diagonally across my bed, not feeling too good. And I was fairly new as a Christian, but God spoke to me. And I knew it was God because it was this clear voice inside my head, and there was nothing else clear in my head. And what God said to me was this. You don't need to do this. He didn't shame me, but he was firm. And what he was saying is, you're, you've got a new life. You, in your old life, you had to do it, man. You, that was exactly where you would go. But now you don't need to. Do you realize that whatever that area of transformation is in your life, you don't need to? That Christ has made a way through what he did on the cross, that he took your sin nature and that power, that relentless power, and it was crucified, died, and buried with him so that you don't have to do that. Now that raises an acid question, doesn't it? Which is the question for this text. If I'm dead, why does it not feel like I'm dead? Why is it I still have bitterness? Why, why am I recurringly angry? Why is gossip this thing that just takes over for me and I know I shouldn't do it? I don't feel dead. Well, Paul uses a second image that I think is very important to also look at here. The image of death shows the finality and the fullness of what Christ did for us. And now this, he uses a second picture that we will get this. Would you look at verse 6 with me? Toward the end of verse 6, Paul says this, we are no longer slaves to sin. 
Now he's moved off the, the death metaphor, and now he's using slavery. He's a, a slave who just got set free. The chains are now off. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. See, he's saying you're like a slave who was captured, and now you've been set free. And look at verse 14. Sin is no longer your master. You're not under that slave master of sin. So, so you, you don't have to do what sin used to tell you to do. Now, when Paul is saying this, this letter is going to the Christians in Rome. Many of the people sitting there listening to this letter are slaves or used to be slaves. So this is not some idle metaphor for them. They get what Paul's saying. They're saying, I used to have no choice, no control over my life. And now through Christ, I do. Through his resurrection, I'm given the power to live free. I've read, and I recommend to you, if you've not read, uh, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. And as you know, Frederick Douglass grew up as a slave in the early 1800s. He, he, was, he grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland. And there, as just a very young infant, he was taken away from his mother. And sometimes his mother would sneak into where he was sleeping and kind of hold him at night, but she had to leave before the light came up so that that was not known. So he never saw his mother in the daylight. And how the kids on that plantation there were, were fed was they would dump runny cornmeal into a trough and all the kids would grab an oyster shell and fight their way to the trough to try to scoop out a little bit of it. That was his life. Well, Frederick Douglass had kind of an independent streak. He was considered uppity and so he was sent off to a slave master called Edward Covey who was known to be what they called a slave breaker. Well, you can imagine life with a slave breaker. It's constant whippings. It's constant psychological torment. It's, it, it, one time he, he, he was kicked and beaten almost to the point that he died. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. And one day in September, 1832, he slipped off the plantation and he jumped on a freight train headed north toward Philadelphia. When he got there, some people fixed him up with a sailor uniform and some fake sailor papers, and using those, he was able to travel without being detained until he got to New York City. And when he got to New York, where he knew he was finally free, he said, I felt like I had just escaped from a den of hungry lions. I was free. For the first time in his life, he could read without being caught and punished for doing that. He, he could write. He could speak. He could do whatever he wanted. Now, slave master Edward Covey is still back in Maryland. If you want to, you can jump on the train and go back to Maryland. But what Paul's saying is, you don't have to. You've been set free. There's a freedom in Christ from the power of sin. It comes through his resurrection. He gives it to you. He gives it to me. Now, sometimes Christians have gotten confused about this because they're like, well, there's death to sin and then there's this freedom from slavery to sin. Does that mean, like, I can't sin? And over the years, you'll see in church history, Christian groups who, who rose up and said, yeah, you can't sin. You have this special experience of the Holy Spirit. You become sinless and all that. That's not the case. But that's confused a few people. Even Charles Wesley, the great Anglican theologian, wrote several of the hymns this morning. He, he was writing the words one time to a hymn that we call Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, great hymn. And he wrote, pure and sinless, let us be. And then he passed the lyrics to his brother John to review and before they got published, and John was reading this, no, 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 pure and sinless, and wrote, never, with an exclamation point in the margin, crossed out the word sinless and wrote spotless. 
So now we sing, pure and spotless let us be. What Charles got wrong that day and what John got right is that you and I can still be tempted by sin. We still have the capacity to sin. What's changed is the inevitability of sin. Let me show you this in verse 11. Paul says, you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin. Why would he tell the Christians you should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin? Because sin still has power. Or verse 12, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Why does he tell them that? Because sin still wants to control the way you live. Before we had no choice. Now, sin has as much control as we give it. Oh, how can I, how can I explain how we live into this? Uh, oh, I know. Yeah. Uh, last week, I got to hear uh, Gary Hagen, who's the head of International Justice Mission. And a lot of you know the work of IJM. They go around the world, and as you probably are aware, slavery is still a huge problem in today's world, here in America and also developing countries around the world. And so IJM has learned how to work with local authorities to set free people who are literally enslaved in horrible like work camps and all kinds of situations around the world. Uh, he, he put up slides on the screen of slaves that they had set free in India and slaves they had set free in this horrible slum condition in Nairobi. And here's what Gary Hagen said. He said, we have learned over the years how to set free thousands of human beings from slavery to external visible slavery. But we have had to learn how to set them free from invisible internal slavery. He said, because when somebody gets freed by our IJM team, they come out and they have completely lost during their years of slavery the capacity to dream about their life. What was the point? Why would you think, maybe I could move here? Maybe I could date that person. Maybe I could have a child. Maybe I could get a new job. There's no dreaming. And they've lost the capacity to take responsibility for their life. You say, use your will, do something. That's all been stripped away because they had no will. They had no capacity to take responsibility for their life. And so here's what Gary Hagen said. He said, we've learned that we have to take these newly freed slaves and put them into a freedom school. And we have to teach them the capacities that they've lost to dream for their life, to take responsibility for their life. And he said, it takes a minimum of two years for someone to regain that freedom. They have to go to freedom school. Well, here's what Jesus is calling you and me to do. He's enrolling every one of us into freedom school. He says, I have set you free from the power of sin, but you don't know how to live free. And so you've got to learn how to live free and you're going to stay in the school for a while. You're going to have to develop the capacity to live free. Here's how you do it. Verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. This word consider is the first imperative in the book of Romans. Paul's taken five chapters to say, God did this for you and God did this for you and God did this for you. Now it's your turn to collaborate with God. Count yourself dead to sin. The word is actually like an accounting word. It's like take it to the bank, put it in the ledger. It's settled. You're dead to sin. But here's what happens for you and me. We have this, this voice in our head. Sometimes it's actually like a dark or lying spirit that says, you'll never change. You keep falling into that. I don't even know why you bother trying to change because you never will. That's not true. Paul says, consider yourselves 
dead to sin. That was true of you before. It's not true now. Consider yourselves alive to God. There is a capacity in God that will join with your will as you collaborate with him that you can change. Praise God. And here's how you change. Verse 13, you don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, skipping on down, use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying every person's been given some gifts, assets, capacities by God. What are you going to do with those? For example, let's say that you're smart. You, you actually are gifted with some intelligence and, or maybe it's a street smart. You know your way around. Well, you could use that capacity, if, if you wanted to, to outwit people, to hoodwink people, to bamboozle people, to get your way, right? To manipulate people. You could use that exact same power for the glory of God in which you see somebody in need and you go, you know, I can help you with that. I can hook you up with a person. Let me solve that for you. Or let's say that you're attractive. I know we all tend to think we're not, but 50% of us are above average, right? So, uh, <laughs> and so you have a certain charisma, a, 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 an attractiveness. You draw people to yourself. You can use that to fulfill your own lusts. Or you can use that exact same God-given capacity to draw people to yourself and then point them to the Lord. Let's say God's given you money. You just have an instinct for it. It makes sense to you. You know how to make it. You know how to invest it. Well, you could use that just to score points for yourself and, and to sort of prove things to your friends. Or you could use that in a totally quiet, humble, generous way in which you empower the poor, lifting them up out of poverty, and you give to the church for the spread of the gospel. You support your family. Do you see? That's what Paul's doing. And most of that is going to happen day by day by day. It's going to be a daily choice. Some of the change, the freedom that comes to us in Freedom School will be instant. You know, that, that word that God spoke to me when I was in Spain, where he said, you don't need to do this. There was something that happened that day where there was a grace imparted to me. I just can't explain it any other way. Where I, I felt like I was, had a new strength that I didn't need to do that. And by God's grace, I have not been wasted since that day. I'm not saying it to toot my own horn. I'm just saying that God sometimes empowers us in a remarkable way, and there's instant freedom. But most of the change that I've seen in my life, and I suggest probably most that you'll see in your life, is the gradual, daily, little bit by little bit change, incremental, so slow, you're not even sure it's happening, a little bit forward, a little bit back, until you become more like Jesus Christ. When I came out of my family of origin, for whatever reason, my temperament or whatever, I was a perfectionist. And I also was kind of critical. I could point out what was wrong. Well, that was awesome in terms of getting a job as an editor. Finally, somebody was going to pay me to point out what was wrong. This is awesome. <laughs> Didn't work so well at home. Karen would spend the day cleaning the house and, and hoping that I would walk in and go, wow, this place looks awesome. Thank you so much for all you invest to make our home so lovely. Instead, I would reach up and just kind of wipe the dirt off the fan blade. As the counselors would say, that was not what Karen needed. Okay? <laughs> but God's gone to work in me. And over 32 years, I've gradually realized, you know what, that capacity, that's useful in certain points, but actually maybe I could lead with a more affirming spirit, a more generous spirit. Uh, and then maybe if it's the right time, I could in a constructive way help improve whatever needs to be improved. But mostly I can pull back a little bit on that and lead with, with a kindness. And over 32 years, I got to tell you, I'm getting better. 
I hope God gives me another 32 years. I think I'm going to get even better. And that's how it changes. It's day by day by day. We walk into freedom as we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen.